This podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, who makes it easy and fun to simply step outside. That might mean breaking a speed record in a rugged, built-for-fun sonic snow tube, walking an extra block in a warm, weather-resistant down jacket, or just taking a breath on your doorstep before cozying up in a quilted sweatshirt. For however you experience the outdoors, shop clothing and gear at llbean.com. Be an outsider. One hundred and fifty years ago, the United States established its first national park, a place like no other on Earth, full of fuming mud pots, towering waterfalls, spectacular geysers, and a chorus of wildlife beyond anything man could imagine. Yellowstone was not the first land preserved to protect its unique beauty and fragile ecosystem, but it was the world's first national park. I'm Jay Snepperson. And this is the America's National Parks Podcast. America's first federally protected land was, believe it or not, a grove of live oak trees in Gulf Breeze, Florida. The angled branches of a live oak were perfect for shipbuilding, especially being near Pensacola Bay. President John Quincy Adams set the land aside, really our first national forest, in 1828, and it's now a part of the Gulf Islands National Seashore. Some sources list Hot Springs in Arkansas as the first national park, but it wouldn't gain that status until 1921, 49 years after Yellowstone became a national park. Like the Naval Live Oak Grove, it was set aside to preserve and distribute a utilitarian resource, hot water, well before the national park idea was born. Yosemite became a park before Yellowstone, but a state park. Disappointed with the results, 26 years later in 1890, Congress made Yosemite one of three additional national parks, along with Sequoia and General Grant, now part of Kings Canyon. Mount Rainier followed in 1899. But as an older state park, Yosemite did have a strong influence on the founding of Yellowstone in 1872, because Congress actually used language in the State Park Act as a model. It's entirely possible that Congress may have preferred to make Yellowstone a state park in the same fashion as Yosemite had it not been for an accident of geography that put it within three territorial boundaries. Arguments between Wyoming and Montana territories that year resulted in a decision to federalize Yellowstone. The human history of the Yellowstone region goes back more than 11,000 years, and although Yellowstone had been thoroughly tracked by tribes and trappers, in the view of the nation at large, it was really, quote, discovered by a series of formal expeditions. The first organized attempt came in 1860 when Captain William F. Reynolds led a military expedition. But this group was unable to explore the Yellowstone Plateau because of late spring snow. The Civil War preoccupied the government during the next few years. Immediately after the war, several expeditions were planned, but none actually got underway. In 1869, three members of one would-be expedition set out on their own. David E. Folsom, Charles W. Cook, and William Peterson ignored the warning of a friend who said their journey was the next thing to suicide. 
From Bozeman, Montana, they traveled down the divide between the Gallatin and Yellowstone rivers, crossed the mountains into the Yellowstone, and continued into the present park. They observed Tower Fall, the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, continued past Mud Volcano to Yellowstone Lake, then south to West Thumb. From there, they visited Shoshone Lake and the geyser basins of the Firehole River. The expedition refueled the excitement of scientists who decided to see for themselves the truth of the party's tales of the, quote, beautiful places we had found fashioned by the practiced hand of nature that man had not desecrated. In August of 1870, a second expedition set out for Yellowstone, led by Surveyor General Henry D. Washburn, Montana politician and businessman Nathaniel P. Langford, and Attorney Cornelius Hedges. Lieutenant Gustavus C. Doan provided military escort from Fort Ellis. The explorers traveled to Towerfall, Canyon, and Yellowstone Lake, followed the lake's eastern and southern shores, and explored the lower, midway, and upper geyser basins, where they named Old Faithful. They climbed several peaks, descended into the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, and attempted measurements and analysis of several of the prominent natural features. Ferdinand V. Hayden, head of the U.S. Geological and Geographical Society of the Territories, led the next scientific expedition in 1871, simultaneous with a survey by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The history of science in Yellowstone formally began with Hayden's expeditions. Hayden's 1871 survey team included two botanists, a meteorologist, a zoologist, an ornithologist, a mineralogist, a topographer, and an agricultural statistician entomologist, in addition to an artist, photographer, and support staff. The Hayden survey brought back scientific corroboration of the earlier tales of thermal activity. The expedition gave the world an improved map of Yellowstone and visual proof of the area's unique curiosities primarily through the photographs of William Henry Jackson and the art of Thomas Moran. Moran's art depicted many of Yellowstone's geologic features and landscapes. These depictions later proved essential in convincing the United States Congress to establish Yellowstone as a national park. Moran was born in England in 1837. In 1844, his family moved to Baltimore and later settled in Philadelphia. Around the age of 16, Moran began his artistic training as an apprentice in a wood engraver shop. After two years, he left to begin a full-time painting career. Like many American artists at the time, Moran studied abroad in Europe, focusing on the works of European masters and soon established himself as a well-respected painter, engraver, and illustrator. He produced images for several publications, including Scribner's Magazine, and it was through his association with Scribner's that he first learned of the Hayden Expedition. He agreed to join the expedition at his own expense, and with the support of Jay Cook & Company, owners of the Northern Pacific Railroad, Moran was welcomed as a member of the survey team. The Northern Pacific Railroad had a vested interest in Moran as they were looking to popularize the area in the interest of expanding their railroad westward. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine. From remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts, you can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com 
or on the app, and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit Campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. During the 40 days he spent in the Yellowstone area, Thomas Moran documented over 30 different sites. His sketches, along with William Henry Jackson's photographs, captured the nation's attention and forever linked the artist with the area. In fact, his name became so synonymous with Yellowstone that he was often referred to as Thomas Yellowstone Moran. Moran kept a journal throughout his Yellowstone adventure, which is mostly still intact today. The diary begins in the middle of a sentence on what is thought to be the second page. It's suspected that the first page exists. However, its location remains a mystery. Here's Abigail. The route lay through a magnificent forest of pines and firs, all growing straight as a ship's mast and growing but a few feet apart. Passed over the debris of a great landslide, where the whole face of the mountain had fallen down at some time, laying bare a great cliff some 500 feet high. The view of the lake as we approached it was very beautiful. It is a small pool formed by the widening of a stream at this point. It is not more than half a mile in any direction. The mountains surrounding it are about 11,000 feet high and about 3,000 feet above the level of the lake, having snow still upon them. The foothills are all heavily timbered with pine and fir, which appear to be the only trees that grow upon the mountains in the west. After descending to the shore of the lake, some of the party fished in it and caught a few of the finest trout that I have yet seen. After a rest of about three hours, all the party started back for camp excepting Jackson Dixon and myself. We having concluded to remain over until the next day for the purpose of photographing and sketching in the vicinity. Made a large fire and cooked our supper of black-tailed deer meat, which I enjoyed hugely after riding and nearly all day. For the first time in my life, I slept out in the open air. During the night, it rained a little, but not enough to wet us to any extent. Got up early enough in the morning to get our breakfast and commence photographing as soon as the sun rose. The outlet of the lake is through an immense gorge in the mountains, bordered with great cliffs and peaks of limestone, some of them isolated and forming splendid foreground material for pictures. Sketched but little, but worked hard with the photographer, selecting points to be taken felt, used up about 12 o'clock, and started back to the camping ground where we prepared our dinner and rested an hour. Jackson got 13 negatives during the day, which considering the difficulties, quite a feat, I think. Started back for camp at 3.30 o'clock. Clouds began to gather and a rain set in in the mountains all around us, but did not fall heavily on us. Jackson's pack mule and traps got pretty well shaken up in the return by having to force a passage between trees not wide enough apart to allow free passage of the pack. When about halfway back, Dixon's horse got his foot fast between two fallen trees, and in his frantic efforts to extricate himself, he struck Dixon, who had dismounted, to help him square on the top of the head with his forefoot. 
peeling his scalp and hurting him considerably. The view from the mountain southeast of our camp and on the road to the lake looking toward the Yellowstone country, glorious. And I do not expect to see any finer general view of the Rocky Mountains. We got back to camp at 7.30, and after supper, went over to our tent where most of those then in camp were collected. July 15th, left Ellis for Yellowstone Camp Trail Creek. July 16th, left camp on Trail Creek in company with Stevenson, Jackson, and Dummy for the Crow Agency. Stayed at the agency all night. We were each presented with a buffalo robe. July 17th, left the agency at 12 o'clock, did some photography in the Lower Canyon, and reached Bootler's Ranch at 1.30 o'clock in the night after a severe ride in the dark of 35 miles from the agency. July 18th, remained in camp at Bootler's. July 19th, left Bootler's in company with Jackson, Dixon, Alec, Joes, and Chrisman. Reached the Middle Canyon in the afternoon. Camped for the night, did some tail fishing, photographed, and sketched some next morning. July 20th. Left the Middle Canyon and went as far as the Devil's Slide on Cinnabar Mountain, where we camped for the night. July 21st. Sketched in photos in the morning. The main party passed us in the forenoon, went on in the afternoon as far as the hot springs in Gardner's River. July 22nd. In camp at Hot Springs. July 24th. Left in the afternoon and went as far as daylight allowed and camped in a small ravine near the Yellowstone. July 25th. Left camp in the ravine early and touched the Yellowstone at the bridge to Tower Falls. July 26th. Remained at Tower Falls sketching and photographing. July 27th. Left Tower Falls. Halted at noon at Mount Washburn, arrived at Yellowstone Falls in the evening. July 28th, sketching and photographing about the fall. July 29th, photographing and sketching around the falls and canyon. July 30th, still at the falls. July 31st, left the falls, reached Crater Hill. Large sulfur spring and many mud springs. Left at noon and camped at the Mud Volcano. August 1st. Left Mud Volcano at noon and reached the Yellowstone Lake where the whole party and escort were encamped. August 2nd. Made photographs and sketches of the lake and river in forenoon. Followed the main camp in the afternoon to the hot springs on the border of the lake. 30 miles through heavy timber and was lost for several hours at night in a dense forest on a mountainside covered with fallen trees. Got into camp at 10.30 o'clock. August 3rd. Moved camp a few miles further around the lake to the hot springs. August 4th. Remained all this day at the same camp. Did some sketching about the springs. Took the boat to the springs further around the lake and had a hard pull to get it back as the lake was rough and the wind against us. August 5th. Camp moved to the springs visited yesterday. August 6th. Jackson, Dixon, and myself started out to find the Madison Lake to get a photograph of it. But after traveling through heavy forests until 2 o'clock, gave up the search and got back to camp at evening. August 7th. In camp all day. Photo some of the springs. 
In the evening, Lieutenant Doan arrived from Ellis with an order for the return of the escort to the fort. Grugan and Tyler invited me to return with them and as the wonders of the Yellowstone had been seen. August 8th. Set out with Jackson, Smith, and the escorts across the country for the geysers on Firehole River, led by Doan. Struck the river nine miles below the geysers and camped. August 9th. Went to the geysers, helped Jackson during the day, and returned by myself to camp. August 10th. Started down the Madison and camped on a dull spot on the edge of the river near a burnt bit of timber after passing through the upper canyon with the great cliff in it. August 11th. Moved across the country and reached the first, second canyon of the Madison and camped in it. It is a grand canyon. August 12th. Passed out of the canyon, into the open country, and camped near the basaltic ridge. August 13th. Reached the ranches and camped on the road to Virginia City near Hayden's old camp. In 1978, Thomas Moran's diary, autobiography, art supplies, as well as several personal effects, such as eyeglasses, a pistol, holster, and sketchbook, were acquired by Yellowstone National Park from the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, who in turn acquired them from Yosemite National Park. Yosemite received them in 1926 from Ruth B. Moran, Thomas Moran's daughter. In addition, there are 22 original Moran paintings in Yellowstone's collection. The crowning achievement of the returning expeditions was helping to save Yellowstone from private development. Langford and several of his companions promoted a bill in Washington in late 1871 and early 1872 that drew upon the precedent of the Yosemite Act of 1864, which reserved Yosemite Valley from settlement and entrusted it to the care of the state of California. To permanently close to settlement an expanse of the public domain the size of Yellowstone would depart from the established policy of transferring public lands to private ownership. But the wonders of Yellowstone, shown partly through Moran's paintings, helped capture the imagination of Congress, who established Yellowstone as a national park just six months after the Hayden Expedition. 150 years ago, on March 1, 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act into law, and the world's first national park was born. The Yellowstone National Park Protection Act says, The headwaters of the Yellowstone River is hereby reserved and withdrawn from settlement, occupancy, or sale, and dedicated and set apart as a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. In an era of expansion, the federal government had the foresight to set aside land deemed too valuable in natural wonders to develop. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and narrated by Abigail Trebu. We hope you'll consider supporting us through our Patreon program for less than a dollar an episode. You can help make these episodes possible by hiring writers to track down the stories you care about at patreon.com slash nationalparkspodcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. If you're interested in RV travel, check out RVMiles.com or find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys 
all of our social media as Our Wandering Family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. And by Campendium. Begin planning your next camping adventure at Campendium.com. <laughs>